Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Greta Gerwig about her triumphant new adaptation of Little Women, and essays on Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, The Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems, Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and the action films of Tamil director Vetri Madan. Support independent, non-profit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. It's that time of year again. Film Comment has made a list, and we've checked it twice. The best films of 2019, chosen through a poll of our contributing writers. And according to our new annual tradition, we've announced the results live at a special Film Comment talk. This year, I was very pleased to unveil and discuss the films with the help of Amy Taubin, longtime contributing editor at Film Comment, Soraya Nadja McDonald, who writes for The Undefeated and is also a contributing editor at Film Comment, Michael Koreski, all-around Film Comment All-Star, and Devika Girish, assistant editor at Film Comment. You can read the full Best of 2019 list online at filmcomment.com, including best unreleased films, and don't forget to follow along with our special podcast series, The Decade Project, about the 2010s. Let's go now to our Best Films of 2019 countdown. So, uh, here we are. Everyone's already submitted their polls. We were all up late counting the ballots. Um, that's not how it works, but you know, that's, I'll just pretend that's how it is. So, yeah, we're just going to kind of go through all the films and have a little chat in between. Uh, I hope no one, I don't know, there are no fights break out, but maybe I do. Um, so, uh, any, any initial words? Anyone have any warnings, dietary notes, anything like that? Okay, well, let's, let's get into it then. Let's see, uh, number 10 of uh, 2019, um, Uncut Gems. Um, I'm happy with that. <laughs> what do we think? Um, should, uh, is there any dissent on here? I'd love to hear. I mean, I, I guess I, so I wrote about Uncut Gems for this, uh, in this new issue. There's yes. a feature on in the film, so I guess um, I can start, and then I'm interested to hear if anyone has any other thoughts. I have to admit it wasn't a film that I was as excited about as perhaps some other people. I admired Good Time, which was a cover, a film comic cover. And a also years was ago. The, the number one of that year. But I also had a weird thing that happened, and I can say this because I never actually wrote about it, that I fell asleep in the middle of it for about five minutes and I missed a very important plot point. Wait, good and time I or good In good time, which I've never, again, I've never written about because I've seen it since and now I understand the plot. But when I first saw it, I missed something very key and so I was very okay. lost. Um, but there were things about good time that sort of rubbed me the wrong way. I thought Uncut Gems was, um, um, it rubbed me the wrong way in the right way. It was an incredibly difficult to watch movie. I remember when I saw it, I was having a very um, frantic, harried day. Even getting to the theater, like I, to getting to the screening was really hard and then the movie started really, really late and then it was over late so I had to get someplace after and I was caught on a subway that stopped. It was kind of like being in the movie. Yeah. Basically, this kind of like frantic, like terrible. And like those are really bad, those bad subway musicians making it all <laughs> the worse. Um, but that's beside the point, obviously. Um, I actually found this to be pretty um, terrifying, exhilarating film. Adam Sandler, of course, getting a lot of the talk, but it's, it's really the experience of the film, the oral experience, the visual experience, the editing. Um, I think the Safdie brothers are, they're the real deal. 
I want to follow that up with my with a story of my own uh, about watching Uncut Gems. How many people here have seen it? Oh, oh okay, wow. quite a few. So this open. will make sense. <laughs> so I saw it at uh, Tor the Toronto Film Festival, and I had a similarly harried experience because already it's a festival. It was my last day there. I hadn't eaten anything. <laughs> And you know, this whole time, I, I'm just watching this movie and like trying to parse all the dialogue, and it, it's just so it's so fast and it's so noisy. And then I had to leave before it ended. I had to miss the last 15 minutes to catch my flight. No. Exactly. So I ran out, and you know, I had to get a cab, and then I had to get to the airport. So then I come back to New York, and I'm like, uh, well, you know, I, I saw like most of it. I, I know where it was going. <laughs> exactly, and then I saw, and then I went to a press screening here, and I saw the movie again, and I just, I yeah. saw a totally different movie. I mean, yeah. just, you know, I did not know what was coming, and I think that experience of watching it again and being like doubly surprised and just like taken aback, and sort of encountering really how unpredictable and original this movie is yeah. uh, in that way endeared it to me even more. And uh, I was talking to someone today about, you know, how, how do you choose how to put which movie on, how, which movies on these lists, mm -hmm. especially when you have just 10 spots. And I think one criterion that I've been trying to keep in mind is which movie genuinely feels completely original, which movie is like something that every minute I did not know what was going to happen next or what particular elements these filmmakers were bringing into what combinations. And for me, Uncut Gems definitely is that film. Yeah, they, 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 it's just such a propulsive mode of filmmaking and, and just so immersive too, you know, at any even point you just feel like you're in his headspace in every way and it's not a great place to be, but it's it just feels completely authentic. Um, and they really don't pull any punches. I know there seems to be a, a fraction of the audience that has not seen it, but yeah. So that we'll, we'll leave it at that. Yeah, uh, I'm the dissenter. Dissenter, okay, yes. Um, we, see the, we see the floor to the dissenter. I like the Safdie brothers a lot. I've had, I think, two of their films on my top 10 or my top 20, but this did not make my top 50. So I'm a dissenter. Um, in part, it was that I saw it under not the best circumstance. Uh, I saw it uh, here in the New York Film Festival in Tully. And I saw it in a run of films which was The Irishman, Joker, and Uncut Gems. And when I got to Uncut Gems, I just thought, can movies do anything except pound you to death? And so I was set up badly for it. I also can't bear watching Adam Sandler, so. <laughs> but the basketball player, and the basketball player, actually I'm on the New York Film Critics, and he got two nominations for uh, Best Supporting Actor, which I thought was great. Yeah, he's really, I mean, one of the. Really good. Kevin Garnett, for yeah. those yeah. who don't know. Tensest, yeah. tensest scenes in the movie, the, the thing with the thing just cr crashing, the, yeah. the uh, Julie, jewelry case. Yeah, the thing uh, I'll add about Kevin Garnett is that, because um, I actually had a, the chance to sit in on a round table with him and the Softy Brothers and Adam Sandler uh, last week, I think, or maybe the week before. Um, and one of the things he was talking about was how his basketball career had sort of unexpectedly prepared him for this movie um, because he had a coach who would basically, like in addition to just like regular basketball practice, like you know, 
shooting free throws and like running laps or like doing whatever basketball players do. Um, he would literally have them rehearse their faces as they're coming out of the huddle <laughs> when he's called, you know, when he's like drawn up a play or called a play or whatever. And he's like, yeah, he's like, no, he was really serious about it. Like he would make us do it over and over and over. <laughs> um, and so, you know, by the time he's on a film set, like having to do takes, it's actually not that different from what he was doing in basketball practice. Yeah, he, he literally had to have a game face. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Every single time. All righty, well, let's, uh, let's go on to number nine. Glory, yeah. Give it up for Pedro Moldovar. And Antonio Banderas, like, without question, I don't know, while we're ranking, like, top three performances of the year, no question. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Michael, you, you actually wrote about this film as well. I did. I mean, I'm, I, I, even, even as an Almodovar aficionado, I thought this was a particularly wonderful movie. Um, I think it's easy to call it you know, perhaps his most personal film because it's so baldly autobiographical. But Banderas plays a, a surrogate Almodovar figure, basically. He even wears his clothes. His apartment is, is bedecked in things that are actually from Almodovar's apartment. Um, but, you know, Al Almodovar's made a lot of personal films. So you could say that all of his films are personal films. So what makes this one special, I think, is the... Um, is, is the way that it really, really gets at the, well, it's right in the title, right? The, 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 the difficulty that, that um, comes with creation, with creating art, and that can be, be actual physical pain. There's, if you've read interviews with Almodovar over the past few years, he does talk about these ailments that he has and how they are impediments to his creativity, um, even though he has so many ideas and so much that he wants to say. Um, so for this film to dramatize that, to actually be able to get into the mind and, and the physicality of the artist that way, I found incredibly moving. And just generally, to see um, you, this kind of, if you want to, you, you want to say, general autobiographical genre right, of, of the filmmaker, like the eight, and a, the eight and a half, all that jazz kind of film, to actually see that queered and done, you know, from the point of view of a gay male filmmaker, was kind of. Um, a revelation for me to think that it hadn't really been done quite in this way before. I was um, intensely moved by this film, and I've seen it three times. And the third time I saw it, I was nearly in tears through most of it, kind of just knowing what the scope of it is. It also has just one of the best last shots of any movie this year. Maybe, maybe the best. Oh, there, there are a few really great last shots. Maybe we'll talk about. But this is this is really extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really like this movie a lot. Um, for a bunch of different reasons. One is, in general, I like the very early Almodovar, um, the really crazy ones, you know, the crazy trans ones. And then he got somewhat more respectable, and he started making more films about woman, women, but more respectable, and he became a better filmmaker but I thought a less interesting filmmaker. And what's so great about this film is it's looking back at the, those early crazy films without announcing them or showing them. But you know that that, that is the period that when his, uh, I don't want to give a lot of it away, but when his leading actor with whom he was in love uh, comes back, those are the films that he was in. And I thought that was really amazing. Yeah, there's a bit of a kind of a 
high wire acts aspect to that to that to that sort of stretch of the film you know where you, you honestly don't know which i mean you know he made the film now so he's around but <laughs> you almost don't know where where he's going to be going and what, what what will become of him and whether he will emerge from it and there's such an intense tenderness and vulnerability to Banderas in this in this movie uh, you, you just kind of want to give him a hug <laughs> half half the time um it's it's really remarkable there was a, there's also the sequence um where his uh, a former lover of his comes back, um, and and the way that he re-enters the film is is done through one of these kind of typical Almodovarian coincidences, but it's done in such a beautiful way that it just feels like fate, like it was meant to happen. And so much of this movie is about Benderis being um, a Benderis character being um, kind of buffeted along on these on these winds of change and. Um, the the plotting is just so it's so lovely and subtle and lyrical. But there's the, this scene where this where this lover comes back and they share this moment together, um, and it's it's a, it's a, it's an erotically charged moment though it's not an overtly sexual scene. But the I, I can't think of anything I saw this year where I felt more chemistry between two actors than between Banderas and his name is um, Leonardo Sparaglia, I believe, um, who also was in the new Asayas film. Wasp Network, um, a wonderful actor who, also, um, who I've loved in many things over the years, but the charge between these two men, these two middle-aged men who share this incredibly beautiful kiss um, was very, very special as well. Great, great moment. Yeah. And I, I think I always end up talking about colors at a certain point and, and, and sounding a little strange, but also just um, um, Moldovar, just always a filmmaker with, with an attention to the, you know, brightness and intensity you can even just see in the, in the still we have here something i always appreciate because i i don't know oftentimes um uh, I, I i don't always feel like that gets the same or there's like a generic kind of like um super saturation that goes on but his attention to colors and composition is just still kind of unrivaled um all right well so that's pain and glory how are we doing so far <laughs> okay <laughs> good uh, on a scale of one to ten um all right Let's move on to uh, film number eight, please. Yes. There we are. Some Ash. Zsa Zsa fans. Yeah, that's, that's good. Uh, Ash is Purist White, uh, uh, directed by Zsa Zsa um, And uh, this, is, uh, this is a good showing uh, for, for him. Um, I think he's always somewhere in our top 20 lists. Um, I, I think that's, for me, the story of this movie um, is, um, is, is the lead performance, but um, I don't know. If people agree with me. Yeah. You don't? Yeah. You go, oh, no. You go, go. Oh, no. I haven't seen this film. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying not now. to. I, I was hoping I wouldn't have to say that. Oh. <laughs> well, now you have to. This is your, this is your final sign. You need to see so Ashley. I don't right. think this movie should be on this list because <laughs> I haven't seen it. So. Okay. Fair. Um. Yeah, the, the performance is truly, truly amazing. And she is threading her way through many of her past performances, just as the film is threading its way through the scenes, the settings, the milieu of many of uh, his movies. And you can see that. And, you know, it's, it was made in a very interesting way. It was made with multiple, uh, um, each act, let us say, 
has a different technology so that it does move from film in the earliest film to a kind of crude uh, digital video to better digital video. Um, but it recapitulates all the locations of those early films, uh, earlier films, five of them, um, that were really collaborations uh, between the actor and the director. And this is probably the strongest of that. And I, I think when you interviewed um, when you interviewed him, um, I remember it came up that uh, interesting comparison between the milieu of the criminal underground and that of independent cinema in China. And, and it's just, I thought that was a very interesting thing that, that, that drew out. It, it is very interesting um, because you know the the beginning setting is uh, she is you know the kind of gangsters mall in this small town um, mafia. Uh, and, um, and her lover, who is a kind of big shot, then abandons her. She takes the rap for him, and he abandons her when she's in prison. And she goes out on her own and succeeds because she keeps um, the code of the gangsters. But what's so interesting about that comparison about how you survive in China without joining the, you know, the mainstream or the overground part of the economy, um, is that he is one of the most adroit maneuvers of power in in the film world in China. I mean, this is a guy whose films are constantly banned, and yet he's able to start a film festival where he keeps total choice and power on his own. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, it's really amazing how he does this. Yeah, it, it's, he's, uh, and it, I mean, I always consider that such a remarkable you know, package of skills to, to have the control as a filmmaker that he has and also the, the canniness. Um, that's often how you have the longevity that, that he has. And, and he's now, he, at this point, you know, he's, he's kind of straddled almost like you know, two to three to four different eras um, of, of, of filmmaking from, you know, from the late 90s and then and, and each way finding a new way to kind of reinvent himself. But Michael, you're going to add something? Oh, I mean, I just wanted to just quickly say how much I love this movie. I mean, there, I've seen like there was like a general kind of um, ho-hum attitude on the panel about it, if you've seen it. Um, but I actually, Ooh. this was in my top five this year. Oh, yeah. I, 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 this is probably my favorite Zsa Zsa film, and I've really loved quite a lot of them. I was sort of blown away by this. Um, structurally, I find it very interesting, as Amy was explaining. Um, I find, yeah, Zhao Tao's performance to be um, sort of sublime. But there's this great, it, within these chapters, it's this great midsection, particularly, once she gets out of prison, where she just starts to do all these kind of low-level shakedowns of these wealthy, <laughs> disgusting men that is just crowd-pleasing. Yeah. I mean, I saw it here at Alice Tully Hall at New York Film Festival, and people were almost on the floor. They were just, <laughs> they were applauding. I mean, yeah. these, these cons are hysterical. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's, it, but it's also just the way that it plays the genre. It starts out like it's going to be this kinetic gangster film, and then it becomes something else. Comes like a wandering film, um, and then it um, and it morphs into something else, much more melancholy and strange at the end. 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah, she shows, Xiao Tao shows her comedic skills here. I mean, there's one little bit of business that she does at like a buffet table that it's just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's like some sort of silent movie gag of like taking her hat off and putting it on again. It's, it's just very funny. Um, all right, well, that's number eight. Um, who, anyone want to guess what number seven is? <laughs> not, not quite as exciting as guessing what number one is, but by then you might know. Okay, well, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I, I should, I, I, yeah, I, I asked, it's, it's my fault. It is uh, what it is. It is what it is. There you go. Well played. Should have saved that one. <laughs> You're off the hook for not seeing Ashes Pierce. All right, let's see uh, film number seven, please. <laughs> High Life, Claire Denis, um, cover of our uh, March-April issue um, with a, very moody, uh, Robert Pattinson in blue, um, and, and here, you know, in yellow. But um, this is this is a, I almost this is a twisted film. <laughs> I was actually kind of worried that this people would forget about it because it uh, was released earlier this year. Oh, no. <laughs> I almost did, and then I caught up. I actually didn't see it during its theatrical run, and it yeah. was part of my end of year catch up. And I'm so glad I did. Sorry, no. Amy. Um, I, it's very dark. So in some ways, I want to forget about it, too, because it really rattled me to the core. But it's also, it might be the most thought-provoking movie I've seen this year. It's, it it's, feels like a properly existential film. And it's the sort of thing I think very few directors, Claire Denis being one of them, can do, which is this film is really an idea in cinematic form. You know, mm -hmm. it's not, it, it really is just, yeah, it's an idea imagined in all its existential and cerebral dimensions, but yeah. still incredibly affecting and still, it still has to do with bodies and desire and bonds and intimacy as Denise films always do. But, you know, it's that kind of film. And so, it feels almost like a fragment, it's sort of incomplete, mm -hmm. but it opens up all these horizons of possibility about life and existence in a really remarkable way. And I thought Robert Pattinson's performance was spectacular, and I'm kind of sad that people aren't talking about it anymore. Like, I think yeah. that is one performance yeah. people have forgotten. And I think, again, he is carrying the, he and Juliette Binoche, of course, also, and, and the other performers are saying everything with performance in this movie because mm. there's so much, it, there is such little exposition or commentary mm. of any other kind. So it's all in how they're moving. And even the, we don't even properly understand how long, for instance, they've been on this ship. Mm. And it's all conveyed through just, you know, the growing wariness on their faces, how their attitudes towards each other change. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think it's an, another Claire Denis movie that's you know going to be like uh, one of the all-time greats for me, probably. <laughs> so you liked it? Yeah. <laughs> Let me think about that. Yeah. So, Rai, were you, gonna, you wanted to chime in about uh, Pattinson, maybe? I do. I feel yes. like people... It's weird. He's, like a, he's still a sleeper. It's like he's still shaking off the hangover from being in this awful Twilight movies. Um, and <laughs> and he really does, there, is, there really is more to him than that. Um, and then you put him in something sort of like weird and experiential like this, um, and you, he really kind of like knocks you over 
um, with his abilities in a way that you might not necessarily like first realize about him. Yeah, yeah. No, and this is this is a really tall order because it's it's almost like a you know being on a spaceship and setting something on a, on a ship is like doing a piece of like black box theater or something. There's not a lot of room to maneuver, you know. And so, uh, Devika, you were also just talking about like how you have to, you know, you, you have to convey a lot with a little space, a little time. Um, and and you know, this is also this is a movie that just plums like depths of like what humans are capable of. Um, and uh, he has to kind of react and, and weirdly be a kind of moral center to, to, to the film as much as that's possible, um, given the kind of degeneration that just that just occurs. Um, I mean, it doesn't help that you know the camera loves him as well. Um, but uh, yeah, that's 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 good. And Julie Binoche, definitely, probably one of the best wigs of the year. I would say. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of glorious. It's it's uh, it's very yeah. I think in an interview, Clarity was like just about how it was just perfectly like sort of witchy sort of sort of a feel that it had um but we actually we had them here for a talk so i can plug a previous talk we did which is a really entertaining um talk with uh, claire denis and robert pattinson about about uh high life so what happens next well i believe it's film number six hooray hooray the souvenir uh, directed by Joanna Hogg. Um, I adore this film. I, 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 this is also quite a mood that we have here on this shot. It's kind of how most of us feel uh, at any given time this past week. Um, but yeah, it, I, I don't know where, where, where to begin. I just I was completely drawn in uh, um, just by this kind of portrait of like innocence and experience and just um, watching uh, the main character, watching her just progress and kind of battle through. Um, but of course, with, with Joanna Hogg's movies, this deep staging she does, just working things out in, in, in a space, I, I feel like basically she kind of reinvented or re, 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 revived that uh, you know, deep staging uh, because when she does it, it just has, has an electricity again, um, I think. There's maybe kind of lazier ways of, of using like this almost, I don't know, kind of tableau sort of format. Um, and she's, she's brought it to life. I mean, this, you know, these scenes, you know, uh, and, and the scene when they, they are um, in the apartment, which becomes its own kind of dramatic space, um, are all just, just perfectly staged. Um, so yeah, I was, I was, I can't say I was smiling from beginning to finish, but um, yeah. You. Can we just take this opportunity to dunk on the Hollywood Foreign Press Association really quickly? <laughs> Please, yeah. And their <laughs> and their seeming like willful ignorance that women make films at all. <laughs> yes. I just I just want to point that out. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is, especially because this is the best movie of the year, according to me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> This was my number one. Um, this yes. has the best last two shots of the year, back to back. They're incredible. There's one thing that she does in this movie that I've never seen any filmmaker do, um, and it, you know, just describing it won't um, mean much if you haven't seen the whole film, but 
the second to last shot of this movie is um, a double track. So the camera is tracking into the main character here, played by Honor Swinton Byrne, who's a uh, young filmmaker, at the same time that she is uh, filming a shot of her movie um, on her own track. So her, her, her camera is moving left and then the other, the other camera's tracking in and it's happening simultaneously and there's such a power, as she's slowly turning to the camera, there's such a power to it. Um, and then the shot after it is, is, is this kind of um, recapitulation of Ford. It's like her Ford shot. Uh, this, this, this movie uh, for me is just perfect. Um, I, I mean, I've been a fan of Joanna Hoggs for a long time. She's also a great advocate for films. You know, we all talk about Scorsese as a great advocate, but she started a film club where, you know, and she, she, she shows Ackerman films and she brings awareness of many different types of filmmakers. Um, to people who may not have seen them. And we should all be doing that right now. Advocacy is very important. Um, and she's also just making these extraordinary works. And um, the souvenir is, is, is this, um, you, know, you know, I think Sheila wrote it in the piece, you know, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Woman. And on top of that, it's this extremely harrowing depiction of addiction and being in love with somebody who is an addict. And I haven't seen it done quite so honestly. I, I, this, this movie really shakes me up, I have to say. And, um, and for it to be so still, so hauntingly still, mm -hmm. makes it all the more painful. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that the, 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 um, the portrait of an addict, that he, he's, he's very charming. I mean, he's, very, he's a very kind of seductively, you know, I don't know, acerbic figure. But also loathsome. Like it's, and loathsome, I heard, yeah. Well, I heard, I, you know, I heard a lot of people um, criticize the film, or at least talk about how they couldn't take watching the film because he's so clearly um, you know, wrong for her or using her, which he is, or loathsome in some way, or you know, he lords over her with his opinions. But that's, you know, this is based on her experience. This is something that she went through. This is sort of like a tribute to, to someone who, was an ex uh, who, who holds a very painful place in her life, in her past. And it just felt very honest to me because you can't really solve all the problems. You can't choose who you fall in love with sometimes, and you can't um, make all of the pain go away instantly. So mm -hmm. um, for her to kind of plumb these depths, I thought was very brave, actually. Yeah. It's, um, I think it's also interesting as, as uh, another, I guess in the past couple of years, you've had a, a movies that are really intense, like memory pieces, and, and that's an aspect of this film as well, um, you know, where Joanna Hogg is kind of recreating a, a lot of, um, you know, things from her past, you know, uh, you know, down to using like, you know, eight millimeter that she shot her, a 60 millimeter that she shot herself, um, rather super eight. Anyway, we'll fix that in post. Um, and you know, at, you know, in her apartment, I think I believe the view outside her window, um, you know, is, 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 uses slides that she took um, of the view outside her window when she was growing up, um, and all sorts of other aspects from it. Uh, there's text that's reading read in the movie that is from letters that she herself got um, from the the uh, the corresponding difficult relationship that that she had. Um, but I just like this as well because. Um, I mean, let's say another memory movie like Roma was one that, you know, totally, totally different, no comparison, but, you know, um, this is one that kind of grabbed me, grabbed me more somehow because it, um, it didn't feel like vanishingly, vanishingly meticulous in its, in its approach somehow, um, but I don't know, that's just, and then t this year as well you have other movies um, like The Irishman as well, which is also very meticulous about, about recreating the past and 
really thinking about the filter we see, see it through. Um, but I don't know, that was one thing. Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood, I guess, is another memory film in a way. But yeah, that's my little sidebar on memory. Um, all right, well, let's move on to the next film on the list, uh, number five. Five is Atlantics, uh, directed by Madhu Diop. Um, uh, I, I should probably also say, like, you know, most of these films are were in the New York Film Festival. This is uh, as well, and, and it's in Cannes as well. Um, but Atlantics, who wants to speak to Atlantics? I'll you, go. Yeah. I have, all right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I really. Oh man, I really love this film. This is probably like one of my top three this year, actually. Now that I think about it. Um, because, like, I just think Madi is so interesting in the way that she tells this story that's a ghost story, right, but it's also about, like, the idealism of young love, um, and how capitalism crushes that, yeah. <laughs> um, and, like, she's folding in, like, all of these different... Um, social influences on her on her heroine's life on Ada's life, um, but the thing that like still like every time I think about this film like that blows my mind is that um, the actress who plays Ada doesn't speak French, and Madi does not speak Wolof, and somehow the two of them manage to like communicate. <laughs> Um, and when I asked her about this, like she basically said that um, she was using a lot of her own instincts and experiences with acting, um, and she was like very particular about her blocking and just sort of the the atmosphere of the set in terms of what she was going for. And I think you can really see that in mm. the film. Yeah. Um, the ending just crushes me every time. Like, I've seen this, like, three times now, and I still just, did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I wish I could be more articulate, but, but yeah. No, I, this film is also in my top three, and I have the same problem of, like, being absolutely unable um, to, you know, find words to talk about how the, the impact this film had on me. And I have to say, you, you used the phrase vanishingly meticulous earlier, and... Yeah. I I liked that phrase because you know this is not a film that's that looks perfect and um, it's not like a perfect object and which is not to say that it's bad or it's poorly made it's just not aspiring for that sort of glossy technical and formal seamlessness but it's also probably the most cinematic experience I had in a movie theater this year because I mean in in the way that its emotions are so big even though it's it's not actually like a big movie yeah but the emotions are so big and the way in which it just washes over you and it, the themes of romance and lovesickness and grief all these like very cinematic themes you know and the kind of what we really think of of cinema as representing loss and um spectrality all of that is just so beautifully represented in this film 
while also, I mean, Mati is able to do that while also being really particular about the sociopolitical details of the story. Um, and one of the, definitely one of the best films I've seen about migration in recent times, which is a popular topic now, but again, this sort of the ability to bring out its um, affective dimensions, to be able to tell the, sto the story of economic oppression, um, about you know, economic refugees, oppression, and, and neoliberalism through the story of adolescent and teenage desire is, yeah, it, it's quite exceptional. And she's not a, a new filmmaker. Her, she's been yeah. making shorts, very yeah. acclaimed shorts for a while. Mm -hmm. She's been an actress. Mm -hmm. But it, it's still kind of, you know, very impressive that this is her first feature film. Yeah. And... Yeah, I mean, the fact that it's up here, it's totally deserved and also something that we should take note of. Yeah, I think if... How many people have seen Atlantics? Okay. Oh, goody. I was about to say, if my uncle made Tukibuki, I think I would just sort of, like, roll over and give up. <laughs> um. and, and then she, uh, her film, uh, uh, A Thousand Sons... Right! Oh, yeah. Is, I mean, yes. the, to be able to take on the legacy of... You know her uncle, who is Jibril yeah. Diop Mambedi, and then to create another work of art that's not derivative or trying to challenge that legacy in any way. I mean, it's just so organic and emotionally honest, and that's the thing about this film too. It's so emotionally honest, and, and that courses through all of her work, even though she's so attentive to form and experimentation. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's good genes. Yes, good. The that's one a good <laughs> lineage. Thing I want to add is just. Like this shot, the shot that I always like come back to when I think about this film is, um, there's a shot where Ada is meeting her her betrothed, who's this like much wealthier man um, at this hotel, um, as she's basically still like worrying over the boy um, who's gone off and left because his his boss hasn't paid him in like four months. Um, and it's this, it's the shot where the fiance is like swimming in this infinity pool that's part of the property of the hotel. And then like outward, you see like this vast ocean and the horizon. And there's just like so much in that shot of, you know, like basically um, of Suleiman, her boyfriend being left to the whims of this like giant, seemingly endless body of water. And, and then you have this man who, you know, by the fact that he has money and he has an education and, you know, he comes from France and he's here to pick up a wife and, you know, go back to doing whatever he does. Um, that, that wealth affords him the control of this infinity pool and the safety of this infinity pool as opposed to just being, you know, left to the mercies of, of Mother Nature. I just, I, yeah. Yeah, it's such a, which is such striking contrast to the complete, like, powerlessness and just, you know, adversity of, of, of the, what, what opens the films, which is, you know, the migrant workers who are being stiffed with their wages um, and, yeah, I mean, I, I, I haven't, we haven't touched upon as much the, the kind of supernatural element to the, to the film as well, which is something that is just incredibly phased into mm -hmm. such that you just believe it as a reality. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's like, I don't even question it. And, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, what's 
What I find really strong in the film, everyone else in the film is constantly saying, Ada, and everyone is projecting their own belief about who this young coming of, you know, this, this girl in the liminal zone of becoming an adult. And she's not able to articulate this because everyone else is so busy projecting on her their religious beliefs, their um, romantic beliefs, their beliefs about money and power. And, and finally, by the end, she looks at herself in the mirror and she said, says, I am Ada. And for me, that was one of the most moving moments in uh, a film all this year. Um, I also think, I mean, all films are imperfect. This is one of the most ravishingly beautiful films I've ever seen. And the sound is the most ravishing mm. soundtrack, yeah. certainly, of any soundtrack this year. So it, it is, unlike High Life, which I can't support at all, because, no, 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 because Maddie Diop learned something from Claire Denis, yeah. and what she learned from Claire Denis is this tactile relationship, not only visual relationship, to place, and the richness of the, the world as it is out there, whether it's interiors or exteriors, and I thought uh, Claire threw that all away in High Life, just making this constructed set and um, not, not having anything after the first scene with Pattinson and the baby, which is a very tactile scene, not having anything that is her real talent to, to make this film with. So, so Maddie Diop took it over for me. <laughs> Passed the baton, yeah. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Greta Gerwig about her triumphant new adaptation of Little Women, and essays on Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, The Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems, Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and the action films of Tamil director Vetri Madan, plus Rossellini's history films, streaming Adam Sandler, composer Fatima Al-Qadiri on Atlantics, and much more. Support independent, non-profit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. One, one more thing about this is that uh, we should give some credit to um, Claire Mathon, who is the oh. cinematographer Here. of this film, mm. who also is the cinematographer of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And just in case that doesn't come up, and it, you know, it might not happen in the next four movies, which would be a crime. <laughs> but in case that doesn't come up, we have to give some credit to her, because yes. her photography yeah. in those two films is, is probably the story of the year. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and just in, a, in this film, just... In a, a variety of, of moods and tones and just like strange effects. I mean, the, the club by the water, by the sea that they keep going to, there's this little thing that happens with the play of lights of like, you know, there's some sort of light show thing that they have in the club where I just watch it and just I just sort of phase in and out of like awareness. Um, it's this beautiful, like, a in, like an in interior constellation of some sort. Um, the recurring refrain of these shots of the sun um, and and this even I mean clearly Clermontant also works well with um, composite images because there's this thing um, of the 
just this grotesque glass Hulk skyscraper that the um, that the workers um, are, are working on, as workers do. Um, and uh, it's actually, I guess, a composite image of, of, of and it's it's entirely convincing. Yeah. Um, as yeah. Um, and yeah. it's entirely convincing, but because the the air around it is so saturated with plaster dust, you know, it looks like a Fata Morgana, yes. just rising. Yeah. And, and sets the tone for maybe this is some kind of magical realism because right. the thing that the, that the political part of the story is grounded in is also not real in a sense. Very intriguing, that part. <laughs> um, wait, can you explain that? I've got the, the political part of that. Well, the, the story begins with uh, the gap between the very rich and the very poor uh -huh. and the workers are not have to migrate because they're not getting paid. Right, okay. And that part of the story, um, the building, which also in the narrative is, n is foreign money. Oh, okay. I mean, uh -huh. it's, right, that's true. Uh, yeah. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, it's from one of the oil countries. Right, right, right. right. Um, so all of that is in this thing, but it doesn't look real yeah, either. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like an illusion. Yeah, no, yeah that great. was the sense watching it. I thought, this is a mirage. Yeah. I yeah. Actually, here. Yeah. Um, one other person just to, to mention as well, um, since we were talking about sound and and the score, um, uh, Fatima Al Qadiri, um, who uh, did the score for this, which is an interesting hybrid of kind of traditional and, and electronic uh, music. Um, we have an interview with her, and I guess in our last issue, or maybe it's the present. Anyway, so just another person to pay attention to. Um, all right. Well, let's see uh, what film number four is. <laughs> I am so heartened by this reaction because this is this is the objective number one film of the year, folks. Uh, yes, Transit Christian Pet Sold, a movie that I mean I feel kind of silly. I thought it was a movie that people would somehow forget about. Um, it kind of came out earlier in the year, um, uh, but apparently not. Um, but yes, but Devika, would you like to say a few words about Transit? Yeah, I mean, I again, a movie that just reduces me to, you know, an inarticulate mess. Um, <laughs> again, this is a movie where, I mean, I completely stand behind my number one, but it's also the one that I just, you know, voted with my heart, so to speak. Um, I This is a movie of the year that affected me most deeply and um, opened up, like, these depths of feeling uh, that I'm still like trying to grasp. I would say I saw this, this is going to sound totally blasphemous, but the first time I saw this was on a plane. Cause it like came out in Germany last year and I was on like a transatlantic flight. And I know that's not ideal, but it was somehow ideal cause I was in transit and it, and they say you cry more when you're on planes or something. Anyway, I sobbed the whole time. Um, I think, Actually, it's interesting that we're talking about it immediately after Atlantics, because I think this is, again, a film that is able to create the most beautiful romanticist saga out of this, the horrible reality, present and past, of migration, and still have it be sort of extremely cutting in its critique. And this, this is an adaptation of uh, Anna Seeker's novel of the same name, and, uh, Petzold 
brings to it, you know, a couple things of his own. And one of them is his, just his affinity for ghost stories. Again, so interesting that we're talking about it right after yeah. Atlantics, but, and this is sort of the third in a trilogy that I think he has called Love, Love in the Times of Oppressive Systems, just, just so perfect. And, it, and it, it's a ghost story in many, many ways, and one of them is that it seems to kind of eerily evoke his last two films of the decade, Barbara and Phoenix. There's like these recurring tropes and images and, and way, the ways in which the narrative works is, is somehow mirrored in this film. Uh, and so he he really is able to bring out that the supernatural of the story, even though it's not a supernatural story, but the, the workings of chance, I should say, not the supernatural, but the way in which the workings of chance intersect with the cold logics of power in in you know in history and in the present. And you know his sort of the twist that he brings to the novel is that he's he sets the story in like an unspecified present that looks like modern day France. So the mise-en-scene is completely modern, but the story is referencing uh, the, you know, World War II era France. And so this mixing of times produces this absolutely unsettling effect um, and is, you know, and, and the fact that it's not really signaled in any way, so you, it takes a while for you to even understand that you're being deceived. And that period of you trying to figure out like what's happening, when is this, why do their suits look so modern, but their their visas are like pieces of parchment. Um, that that process of figuring it out is is just so rich with with all kinds of commentary and possibility. And the way in which it like comes towards the end to the theme of love, which is this, you know, that, that's why he called it love and that times of oppressive systems. I mean, just bringing together the theme of love and desire with the theme of like being stuck in bureaucratic limbo. I think that is a masterstroke because, and I, I just wrote about this film for our our issue, so, and this is what I said, so I'm just kinda gonna quote myself so that Exclusive you, preview. <laughs> if you read it, you don't think I'm just plagiarizing myself, but in, this sort of the the state of being in limbo of being stateless is like is is madden, maddeningly opaque and it's laden with this crazed anticipation and love can feel like the most alluring the most powerful of signs when you have nowhere else to go you know it being in love can feel like a home when you don't have a home and i think that is what this film realizes with, with just stunning precision and and stunning emotion so before I start crying again, someone else, please talk about this. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not sure how to, how to follow that, or if I should. I think it's just perfect. Um, so, well, let's see what uh, number three is. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's applause. I heard the, the, the ritualistic thumping of our cushions. Um, is a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood um, by this up-and-coming director you might have heard of, uh, Quentin Tarantino. He showed of a sort of a shy, retiring uh, filmmaker. Um, but uh, yeah, this is, uh, I mean, one interesting way just to step back for a second is, um, I mean, this is a movie that is kind of much wider in, in, in release and, 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 and reach than many of the other movies we've talked about, which is kind of interesting. I like that, you know. 
and, I, and I've been kind of really heartened by the fact that, that it's captured the imaginations of a lot of critics a, as well. Um, because it's, this is, it's a funny, for me, it's like a funny hybrid of like a really involved, ex, like um, personal experiment, um, but also just like a nice piece of pop art in a way. And also just a hangout film. Um, I think, um, I, I don't know if I read somewhere, but like uh, Richard Linklater said something about, I believe, if I remember correctly, that, that this is kind of his Tarantino's hangout film, um, like in, in a way. Um, and he should know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, and, and I really kind of luxuriated and enjoyed just, you know, the, the, the friendship, the buddiness, they're super friends, you know, I mean, I don't know. They're, what's not to like? Well, I know people might have something to say. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's one of my favorites because of shirtless Brad Pitt, but I wouldn't not say it's one of my favorites because of shirtless Brad Pitt. He is, he's well preserved. <laughs> it's true. It's true. He's, uh, I mean, no, and then he, yeah, like the camera lingers on him as a, um, you know, working on some roofing work. Um, uh, it's a memorable scene in the movie. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, did this, does this thing stop working, by the way? I oh, don't know. Do we, we didn't mean to turn it off. You can hear me. It's fine. I, I hear it's fine. It's small room anyway. Um, I've, this movie um, made me realize the importance of um, working through something once you've seen it. For me, working through it through writing. I mean, I, I, it's what I didn't know. I, I am generally, I generally am a fan, I believe, of, I believe. <laughs> it's hard to know what it's hard to know sometimes I came of age at a time when he was so central and so important and so many things that I saw were so exhilarating that he made um, and then you go through phases of questioning why you feel a certain way about something there I knew there was something wrong with it you were saying you love Tarantino unambiguously <laughs> yes yes so, so that's that's it um, no, but I, you know, I've gone through, I've gone through, I've gone through my ups and downs with a lot of filmmakers. Tarantino is a great example of that kind of filmmaker because he's, he's not, he's not just divisive in the culture. He, he, you know, opens up different valves in me depending on what I'm watching. And, and I think, you know, as I've gotten older and watched more films, I also question more what violence means on screen. And I'm less willing to just kind of accept any representation of violence, certain, certainly certain kinds. Um, so this was an interesting one to think about and wrestle with because it's so sharply divided in what it's doing, right? You, you have basically two hours and change of a, you know, fairly, you know, good natured, um, like you called it a hangout movie, but I mean, it really you kind of burrowing in on these, these lives of these people. It's really set to the rhythm of a city. I mean, I love the scenes that are just watching Brad Pitt drive around Los Angeles. It's just, I mean, there's nothing more purely pleasurable. When it gets to the point of what it's all doing in the last half hour, I, I was repulsed. Um, and then I had to kind of think about why I was repulsed. Is it helpful that I'm being repulsed? Am I supposed to be as repulsed as I am? Um, you know, the movie opened up a lot of conversations about, because of the Margot Robbie character playing Sharon Tate, conversations about, um, you know, the amount of dialogue she had and if she was given a full character to play. I think she brings a lot to it. I think she's, it's a beautiful performance, but those questions are valid. Um, and, but fo being followed up by such extreme violence, um, much of it happened upon women. I know that the circumstances of the plot make you think that 
it's correcting this history and that it's supposed to be this like satisfying revenge plot of the people who were, I'm just gonna spoil at this point, the, peop you know, the people who <laughs> carried out the Manson we killings. Can, right, it's been like six months. Um, <laughs> so th there's just something, I, like, it, it was almost like minority report for me. I couldn't quite get my head around the fact that like, well, yes, but they didn't do that. <laughs> Like just because we're aware that it happened, in the world of the film, they did not do those murders. So the incredibly graphic outsized violence that, are, that is meted out upon these women is, um, you know, is, is that, I don't, I don't want to try to use for a word other than appropriate because it's not what this movie's about, but it felt very outsized and very gleeful. And it kind of ruined the rest of the movie for me as I was watching it. That said, when I went back, saw it again, and wrote, wrote about it and thought about it, I realized that I could re regain a lot of the pleasures that I had from the film. I think it's a, a, in many ways a beautiful film, but I do think that Tarantino, the way that he represents violence sometimes doesn't feel completely earned perhaps, or at least it's, an, it's, it's still a conversation to be having. He burned all the Nazis at the end of you know, his last movie. He did. I'm sure you weren't I that. was not. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing? I don't think it's the same thing. I don't think it's the same as burning Hitler alive. Yeah. I don't know in a movie theater. I don't know the fan. Well, we can talk about that, but I want to hear other people to say what. I think he pulls his punches all the time, and that doesn't mean that um, the film isn't violent. The violence is the way he pulls his punches. Um, the um, I like the scenes with Brad Pitt. Not just driving around, I like Brad Pitt at the Spawn Ranch. Uh, Tarantino really knows how to build the anticipation of something bad going to happen. And besides, it's a pretty good representation of that piece of history. And I love that Charlie, although I think Mary Harron's Charlie says, is a much better movie about the whole Manson thing uh, and a much sharper, smarter movie. Um, but what I really wasn't interested in was the hanging out part. Um, you know, I, I don't know why I'm doing it, and uh, <laughs> I, have, I don't have a thing for Leo at all. I never have since he got older than 12, and, uh, when he was very beautiful as a 12-year-old. Um, and on top of that, I'm sorry, I have a terrible cold, so that's why I sound this way. Um, but, you know, someone came up to me and said, I think it's terrible that people are being deprived of what really happened then when they see this movie. And they don't even know they're being deprived of that, that this isn't that story of uh, how um, the Manson murders happen, and what happened for decades as a result of that. Uh, so that was one problem I have. The other problem I have is the 60s was so much more interesting, and there was so much more interesting film and art and television than Tarantino's version of being obsessed, you know, with the worst kind of Western television series that were perfectly awful. And he's absolutely determined that we all appreciate that stuff the way he did. 
yeah. That's what I have to say. <laughs> yeah, it, it is kind of like he wants to, us to relive sitting next to him as a kid watching you know, t- TV shows or something to a certain extent. The only thing I will say about this movie is I fell asleep while watching it and not because I was tired. <laughs> this, this, pa- this panel is not really reflecting well on critics' habits. It's like, we're falling asleep, we're running to screenings, we're watching things on planes. It's just, it's just like, I, I never saw this movie. I guess I should admit that. I'm just kind of to extrapolate. No, I'm um, I, To say one more to say thing, again, like, I like this film generally, I believe. <laughs> I, <laughs> I went to see it. I was, I was driven to see it again within the same week. Like, I turned around and I watched it again because I wanted to go through that experience and see how I felt about it. And it's, it's I mean, the craft on display is undeniable. Yeah, that's that's something that is wonderful about it. Just on every level, you could give credit, like production design, costume design, and, and, and all of it. Yeah, I um, do find that he's... But not editing. I think he's, like, what you articulated. I mean, you know, 40 minutes could have come out of this movie so easily. Yes. Counterpoint. Oh, I was I was just gonna say that like I think this is oh god there's there's so much about this guy that just makes me just roll my eyes, um, and yet like somehow like I will come back to his films later like ten years later and be like god damn it, <laughs> and I think like that's I yeah I think what you what you're articulating about this one is, is yeah. I, I think that's just sort of like, it's just part of his oeuvre. Well, there's even like, The Hateful Eight is something that I, I mean, I truly loathed. I, I think I think it wants you to loathe it, and I think it, he, he achieved that. Yeah. And I, I don't, I do not want to watch that movie ever again. But, That's when how I, I feel f- about Django. And it, yeah, yeah. second second horse, um, with some great scenes, you know. Right. So, but there's always something that's interesting, either structurally yes. or within perfectly crafted sequences. Like Amy was saying, this he builds suspense better than anybody um, working now. Um, so, but so even when I hate something like the Hateful Eight, I still think, oh, but you know, there was there's, there's like the kernel of something interesting there that could have. But yeah. it's, it's too often it gets kind of you know lumped up together with the stuff that drives me insane. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Um, but that's what makes interesting filmmaking. Yes, indeed. You can have a dialogue. Um, just to mention, uh, since I'm, I'm doing little plugs here, we actually had Mary Heron, uh, director of Charlie Says, who had a uh, totally different and very, very interesting um, film about uh, Manson, um, and actually about Mansonites, I should say, um, uh, for a talk here, and you can find that online. Uh, she was amazing and talks about her um, post-punk history. Um, but we we have another couple of films coming up, and we're sort of running out of time. Um, and uh, I guess we can unveil the next one. All right, number two, please. There we go. All right, The Irishman, Martin Scorsese. We had some tepid clapping, I think. For, Perhaps people were expecting a higher ranking. <laughs> Some people wanted it at number one. Yes. I think that that's probably what, what it was. Number two is pretty good. Um, Take it away, Mike. I'd like to, well, I, I actually, am I allowed to just like pass out? Because, because Amy, we had at one point been talking about it um, 
at one point we were recording a different podcast talking about something else and you had seen it but you had some reservations and you were wondering and then you said you saw it a second time and you sent me this email where you said, oh my God. So I want to hear about your second, your experience the second time watching it. Okay, so I've, I've seen The Irishman three times and I'll probably see it more times, partly because of the crap, because I think it's the most brilliantly edited film you know, I've pretty much ever seen. Um, and the first time I saw it, I thought, all this craft, and it's wasted on these people who are so, not even loathsome. I mean, they're barely, barely, barely register as human beings. Um, they are so programmed, like all of us are, by this society in which they are functioning like cogs in this machine. And I couldn't, I somehow couldn't accept that, uh, that, that Scorsese was wasting his time yet again with this um, milieu. Um, and what happened was, the second time I watched it, when right from the beginning I was more interested, but I watched it clear to the end. And in the credits, uh, after the last song, the, in the still of the night from the um, um, nursing home, bleeds over into the beginning of the credits. And then it switches to this incredible Robbie Robertson, uh, largely almost no vocal, um, but for this keening accordion, um, bass and piano, I think. But it, it's a totally different kind of music and suddenly it reminds you how closed this world of this film is, and that there is another world outside it, but that it's all the same. Uh, because, you know, this is a very religious film. This is Scorsese at his most Catholic. Um, it's kind of like T.S. Eliot, the beginning of Burnt Norton, time present and time past are all contained within time future and time future within time past. And that, and therefore, we as humans can't speak of or understand eternity. But that is where we all are. I mean, this is really, really about Catholic redemption and uh, and I was very moved by it. Uh, and I went back and watched the film again, and I was very moved by the whole thing. I also think there's very smart stuff in it, like the fact that the De Niro character learns to kill when he's in World War II, and, and they discover in him that he has a talent for doing things that are against the law. And they can go to him and say, you know, murder the German soldiers instead of us having to love them as prisoners. And he's responsive to that, and he gets out, and then he becomes a soldier in a different kind of army. And, um, I found that all really, really, really moving. And also, 
the milieu seems to be like the milieu in Washington right now. I mean, that was stunning, you know, how they, you know, it's the mafia running the White House. And there's no gap at all. So I thought all of those things were going on. Plus it's gorgeous. I mean, it looks like Rembrandt's. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's always fascinating when you can, when you can, when your view of a movie can evolve. Um, this is a movie where I, I've seen it twice, the second time standing up. Um, uh, the whole thing? The whole thing, yeah. Well, see, I, I, went, I went to like uh, the, the last screening of the festival here, and it was all full, and I was just sort of waiting for people to sit down and to sneak a seat, um, and that didn't happen. So I just stood, and then I can, I don't know why I'm saying this, <laughs> but then I convinced myself it was like having a standing desk. Um, I just happened to be watching a movie. Anyway, now that you think I'm insane, um, uh, I saw it a second time, and um, I think it's a movie where I wanted my feelings to like evolve on it, but I, I just felt I kind of retrenched. And, and, the, and the, the thing that just came back to me again and again is, is the way it's dealing with death and, and just the feeling. I know that it's supposed to seem routine in the movie uh, and that it's his job, it's what he does, is get rid of people, you know? Old, like, it's kind of miraculous how he stages a lot of the murders in this movie. They're like really fast, like you know, so, you know, it's just sort of. If you blink, you don't see a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, just walk by, not, not even drive. I just walk by, um, and at a certain point, I began to wonder what deaths mean. And this is a bit speaking to like why revisit um, the maf mafia milieu, mafia genre. Um, I guess I just it, I came to a point where I, I had death saturation in the sense of thinking about what deaths mean in a movie, in a mafia movie, they, they show you the stakes, you know, they show you um, how far a person will go. And it just started to feel to me like a shorthand um, that I felt kind of lost, I don't know, the value of the life or the value of the death. And somehow in this movie it did, it did even though at the same time it's a movie that makes you feel, you know, dying <laughs> and, and, and the passage of, of life and the, and the fullness of it through, through the emptiness as well. Well, I mean, that's what's yeah. so extraordinary about yeah. it. I mean, what you're saying, it's like people emptied out of their souls, people emptied out of anything resembling, anything resembling what we're used to watching from movie characters, right? And even from Scorsese films. I mean, Goodfellas is about this to a certain extent. Casino is about these, these people who are stuck in these patterns and routines and never grow and never learn and just keep doing the same terrible things over and over again. But they're usually a little kinetic and exciting and fascinating. I mean, De Niro in this movie is completely bleached of anything resembling human interest. And I find that incredibly compelling. I mean, that's th that last half hour especially when you don't even know what he, I mean, what does redemption even mean to him at that point? And then what does it mean to us as viewers? And I thought it was kind of like a, this brilliant kind of corrective to a lot of yeah. um, gangster yeah. films. Yeah. No, I, I mean, there was, there was a dimension to it where like the American history dimension, I thought it was, it was kind of funny watching Scorsese kind of tell history through this as well. I mean, there are obviously like a hundred things going on in this movie. Um, so that was like a history of labor in the United States. It's kind of interesting from that perspective. And the, the, that, you know, the idea of, of De Niro's character is, I mean, admittedly he's a hitman, but he's also like a working man in, in a way, you know, and, and this is kind of the working man's life and death. Um, so that was, it was interesting, but I don't know. Maybe, I, I, maybe because I had just finished watching Mindhunter, um, I kind of like, yeah, it was kind of grueling. Or maybe because I was standing, I don't know. <laughs> Any other thoughts on, on the Irishman? Irishman? Um, 
All right. Well, it's, hey. it's the, it's the final moment. Um, I'm sure there are betters among you who, who might guess. Um, but can we see the number one film of 2019? <laughs> Parasite, Bong Joon-ho. <laughs> We're happy with this? <laughs> I think so. It seems, sounds so. I mean, a Amy and I did a whole podcast, but I feel like oh, that's I true. Hear, yeah, I you're off the hook. I will say, I think it's an amazing movie. I think I kind of enjoyed it less than other people. Not necessarily Party because of pooper. the movie, but because I copy edited Amy's feature <laughs> about the movie. Oh, I thought it made you enjoy it less. No. Well, no, no, no. Your feature was excellent, excellent, but I already knew so many you know details. All the twist, twist. Oh, yeah. okay. Sorry, this. this uh, yeah. I didn't mean this as a criticism of your piece. It's a, it's a wonderful piece that you should read. It's on, it's in the September October issue, and it clearly has uh, a warning at the beginning, like don't dare read this if you haven't seen the movie, because Bong was at, at he was vehement about that. And he was vehement about a certain aspect of the film, which is, or a certain moment in the film, which is the great moment in the film. But you can't say that because you can't give that away. Well, I had no choice, unfortunately. <laughs> She's doing so job. I already knew a little bit, a little too much about the mechanics of the movie, and so much of the pleasure of the movie is seeing how it sort of teeters from one thing to the next and back and takes these some wild turns. So I almost feel like I'm robbed of my ability to judge it really in... in you're hurting, Amy. I, I'm, I feel terrible. Hey, but the, your, your essay it's was not. excellent. So, you know, so it's not all, you know, all, all was not lost. But, um, but I will say, I love Bong Joon-ho. I love his previous work. I actually obsessed with Okja, which many people seem to think is not that good, and I think Okja it's perfect. Great. Really? We yeah. love Okja. I think yeah. it's a perfect movie. And so again, with the disclaimer that I, I was kind of tainted as a viewer coming to Parasite, I will say that I do have some other reservations about it too. I think it totally deserves its place in the top 20, but it wouldn't have been my number one. I don't think I put it in my top five, just because I think there is a... There's something a little clinical about it. The, the, its construction to me is so perfect that it alienated me a little bit. It didn't have the kind of like a genuine strangeness that that which I loved in Okja, like a, a genuine like ridiculous strangeness. Um, you just wanted Jake Gyllenhaal to show up and start doing some <laughs> crazy voice. Maybe. Uh, Song Kang Ho is pretty great. I no complaints about the actors. I, that I think is actually to, for me the best part of the film. The performances are impeccable. You know the best ensemble performance of the year for sure. But yeah, I, I I just felt a little bit removed from it, and I do think that its class critique is not quite as strong and as complex as people have made it out to be. I'm not saying it has to be strong or complex for the movie to be good, but it does, you know, the way the movie's been talked about sets up certain expectations for your reaction, and so then it, it fell short of those reactions for me. So, but you know, if Bong Joon-ho is winning, I'm happy. That's all. <laughs> I think there's, like, my thoughts about this movie are actually about Bong's films generally, um, are 
he has something. I feel like his approach. He has an approach in common with um, with a playwright um, who has like the most controversial play on Broadway right now, which is Slave Play. And Jeremy O'Harris um, has the thing that he likes to say about his work, which is that his goal is to dom the audience. You bet. And I feel like that's what Bond does in his films. <laughs> so that's what I'll say. That's really interesting. Um, I walked out of Slave Play and watched it from the back because I don't like being dommed as an audience. Um, <laughs> and, and the actors, I don't know when you saw it, but now the actors are really just mugging and playing to the audience and camping it up, and it's really awful. Yeah, they, they are, it I will really say, they're definitely awful. doing that in a way that they weren't when it was a New York theater workshop. Yeah. yeah. Um, but... Parasite. 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 <laughs> so I, but I kind of disagree with this about Bong, who, I mean, for me, the reason he is a great filmmaker and that I love his films in the way I can't love The Irishman, is that his characters and the scenes in his film, there are so many colors, and something can move so easily to comedy and then to being just heart-wrenching in almost every single scene. And and yes, that's partly because he chooses his actors very well and they play it, but it's also the way he stages the scenes and writes the dialogue to the degree that we can understand what they're saying in subtitles, you know, which we don't really. Yeah, I mean, there's such a, a, a almost elast, elastic quality um, to, uh, to to the anticness of, 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 of some of his scenarios. Um, where, yeah, you don't necessarily know where it's going. You don't know where you're going as you're moving through it. Um, and and then in a way, yeah, it's it's very, yeah, just sort of unbearably poignant sometimes, and then sometimes uproarious. Um, and another great ending. <laughs> we have we have quite a collection of endings here. Um, um, yeah, I was just going to say this. This has nothing to. This is not a response to Devika at all. Uh, this is yeah. Because I was generally thinking about this in relation to this movie. When something reaches some sort of like saturation point in the culture, there tends to be. Um, a, I'm not going to call it the B word, but there you know there tend meaning backlash. But there oh. tends to be. <laughs> like, what? I realize I should Thank define. There are many options there. <laughs> backlash. Um, but there does tend to be, you know, a kind of devaluing, perhaps, of something that is just clearly great, <laughs> such as Parasite. Um, and I'm not even saying it was my number one movie of the year, as I've said before, it was not. It was definitely on my list, but I was exhilarated by it, and I love a beautiful mess as much as anyone else, but I also love, I, I, I do love something that is so perfectly conceived and executed like this movie was. Um, those hairpin turns that Amy's talking about were, I, 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 when I first saw this film, it was not optimal. I actually watched it on a screener at home, um, and then I did end up seeing it in the theater, which was a, you know, a much better experience. But even from home, this was absolutely thrilling because I was so keyed into every single moment, every single plot turn, every single performance, every single gesture. Um, when you're really in the hands of a master like that, you can, you can, you can um, I wouldn't say you can just sit back and relax because he doesn't let you do that. 
but you can you can be confident that you're going to be taken someplace special. And yes, it's uh, you know we can all say like something doesn't have it doesn't go as deep politically as it as it could or should or 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 whatnot. But I mean, this is a really good pop you know like a pop evocation of a particular political reality that's felt by most people around the world. And I think that's why it's registering. I think people are really responding to what this movie is saying, um, and they can be entertained. Yeah. No, I always think that's a special kind of movie magic when you can have a movie yes. that's so popular and profound at the same time and so absolutely skillful. Well, um, so what's next? And his Let's favorite say. director is Hitchcock. Yeah. What's that? His, one of his favorite directors is Hitchcock. I mean, yes. the popularity mm -hmm. and yeah, the same art blend. of Hitchcock. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, that is the end of our list, but it's not the end of, um, of, of, of movies. We'll have more. Um, <laughs> I just want to clarify that in case you thought we were just going to burn the rest of the movies. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely um, we'll see you in the new year with a, a new issue. Um, we'll have another talk in the new year. We'll have a reader's poll so you can share with us what your top 10s and top 20s are. So please do that. Um, but thank you to our wonderful panel and thank you to our wonderful audience. Thank you. been listening to the film comment podcast with music by greg angie you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes google play or stitcher film comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by film at lincoln center since 1962 film comment has featured in-depth features critical analysis and feature coverage of mainstream art house and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to film comment or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Greta Gerwig about her triumphant new adaptation of Little Women, and essays on Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, The Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems, Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and the action films of Tamil director Vetri Madan. Support independent, non-profit film journalism today at filmcomment.com.